Well, again, we continue our study of Psalms uh, 120 uh, through 134, which are known in the Bible as the Psalms of the Degrees. Now, why are they called the Psalms of the Degrees? Now, I know answering this question is redundant for our church family, but give me a moment just to bring our guest uh, up to speed. Uh, We are taking the position that these 15 Psalms were compiled by King Hezekiah uh, to celebrate the miracle of the degrees. In this miracle, which is recorded in 2 Kings 20, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 38, uh, God calls the shadow uh, on the sundial in Jerusalem to go back 10 degrees, which supernaturally created a longer day. God performed this miracle as a sign to Hezekiah, to the king, that he would heal Hezekiah of a terminal disease, add 15 years to his life, and deliver the city of Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. Uh, Hezekiah chose 15 psalms uh, to correspond to the 15 years added to his life, and we believe he wrote the 10 anonymous psalms in the group uh, to correspond to the 10 degrees uh, the shadow of the sun went back on the sundial. It also seems that Hezekiah arranged the 15 psalms in five trios. Uh, The first psalm in each trio speaking of trust, I mean of trouble, the second psalm, trust in God, and the third psalm, triumph. Uh, Thus, our title for the sermon series, Celebrating Triumph uh, Over Trouble Through Trust in God. Now, today, as I mentioned, we come to Psalm 127, which is in the third trio, second psalm in that trio. Therefore, it speaks of trust in God. Uh, I've taken uh, my title for this psalm from the first line of the psalm, unless the Lord builds the house. So as we've done with the past psalms, uh, let's read Psalm 124. And then I'll provide you just a a summary overview of the psalm, uh, and then we'll move to the historical background connecting the psalm with its history, and then we will look at lessons to be learned for today. So I hope you picked up a copy of uh, the sermon notes, and you'll find the psalm, of course, printed out right there for you. If you don't have a copy, just open your Bible right now to Psalm 127 as we read this uh, Wonderful, beautiful little psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, first look at verse 1. And in verse 1, I want you to see four common threads uh, woven together 
uh, to form one primary truth, which is really the main truth of the entire psalm. And here's the first thread. Circle the phrases, the Lord builds the house. That's in the first line of the psalm in your sermon notes. So circle that phrase, the Lord builds the house. And then on the third line, you'll see the Lord watches over the city. So circle those two phrases, the Lord builds the house and the Lord watches over the city. And then you can just take a line and uh, connect those two phrases. Now, when it says the Lord builds the house, this is speaking of God's power to create. And when it says the Lord watches over the city, it's speaking of God's power to protect, uh, to preserve what He creates. Now, the second thread emphasizes not only does God build and preserve, we also build and preserve. Circle the phrase in the second line, those who build, those who build. And then in the fourth line, circle the phrase, the watchman stays awake. And then you can connect those uh, two phrases with a line. So again, circle the phrase, those who build in the second line, the watchman stays awake in the fourth line, connect those two. And of course, that is referring to you and me. So on one hand, we have God's activity in building and preserving, but on the other hand, we have man's labors and efforts in building and preserving. Now, the third thread is seen in the phrase, in vain which is found at the very end of both lines two and four. So circle that little phrase in both places, in vain. It says, those who build it labor what? In vain. The watchman stays awake, in vain. And then connect those uh, two with a line. Now the words in vain literally mean uh, to be empty, uh, something that's futile, pointless, worthless, powerless. The word also can mean false. And of course, this raises the obvious question, well, how do you build something or how do you try to protect and preserve something in vain? And this question brings us to the fourth thread, which ties everything up and brings us to the main point of the psalm. Notice how the two sentences in verse 1 both begin with the same word, unless. So circle that word unless that you see two different times, connect it. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Bottom line, here's the primary truth of this psalm. It is in vain to try to build or preserve anything independent of trust in God. If we try to build or preserve anything that God does not initiate, that God does not provide for or preserve in order to accomplish His purposes, all our labor will ultimately be pointless and worthless. Verse 2 further explains how we build or try to protect something in vain. Look at how it reads. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Notice that phrase, anxious toil, a key phrase. You might want to circle it. And that means labor or work 
that is filled with worry and fear. It is talking about labor where you feel like the whole weight of completing the project is on you. It is as if the whole weight of the world is on your shoulders. Anxious toil describes the effects of trying to build or protect something apart from trusting in God. See, when you believe everything is dependent on you, everything's dependent on your efforts, well, that saps all the joy out of you. And it leads to anxiety, agitation, a heavy, ominous feeling, and just overwhelming stress in life. And notice, the weight of that pressure actually affects your sleep. Look at verse 2. It says, you rise up early and go late to rest. Your anxiety causes you to try to artificially lengthen the day at both ends so that you can get it all done. Now, let's make sure we bring clarity here. This is not saying that there will not be times when you get up early or you go to bed late uh, to complete a task. The point is simply this. It is vain to rise early and go to bed late when you are not trusting in God. When you're doing that only as an exercise of anxious toil. When you are trying to get it all done on your own apart from dependence on God. Why? Because the last phrase in verse 2 says, For he, God, gives to his beloved sleep. Amen? For he, God, gives to his beloved sleep. Now that phrase can actually be interpreted in two ways. And Bible teachers, scholars, commentators are sort of divided uh, on uh, which approach to take. Uh, uh, the one interpretation is that as it reads in this particular version, that God gives sleep to his child. He gives sleep, gives rest to his child. The other possible interpretation is that God provides for his child even as his child sleeps. Now, I think both are true. That yes, God gives his beloved sleep. He gives his child sleep. But even as we sleep, he is at work on our behalf. You know, previous, previously in this series, we looked at Psalm 121. And we saw there in Psalm 121 that uh, the Almighty God who made, what? Heaven and earth. How he merely spoke and by the power of his word brought what we see into existence literally out of nothing. And that same God is the one who helps us, who keeps us, who preserves us from all evil. And we're told in that psalm that he what? He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He's always active, working on the behalf of his children. Bottom line, bottom line, God not only gives literal sleep, but he also gives the rest of faith to all who put their trust in him. If you are God's child, you are his beloved. Just meditate on that a moment. If you are God's child, you are his beloved. God loves and values you as much as he loves and values the Lord Jesus. Let me say that again. Again, these are th thoughts we need to meditate on. Go very slowly over it. 
If you're God's child, you're His beloved. And He loves you. He values you through redemption in Christ as much as He loves and values the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is just as committed to provide for you and to protect you so that you might finish the work that He's given you here on earth to do as He was committed to do the same for His Son, the Lord Jesus. Staggering truth. Staggering truth that I'm God's beloved. He loves me. He values me. He's totally committed to protect me, to provide for me, to enable me to finish the work that He's given me to do here on earth, even as He did for His Son, the Lord Jesus. So yes, as a child of God, as His beloved, you find rest by crawling into the arms of your heavenly Daddy. At the end of a long day where you've worked hard in labor, where you've worked hard to protect and to preserve, knowing that your daddy is the all-powerful God who calls you his beloved. He is working even when you are asleep to cause all things to work together for your spiritual good and his greater glory. And that's where we find our rest. Now, when you come to the second half of the psalm, In verses 3 through 5, the focus shifts to bring this same trust, the trust we just talked about, uh, into family life, unless the Lord builds the family, in other words, those who labor, labor in vain. You build your family not on anxious toil, not as through worry and fear, but what? Rest in God, dependence upon God, trust in God. Verse 3 indicates God's provision of children is a blessing, and it's also a responsibility. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And then verses 4 and 5 indicate the importance of children for the security and preservation of the family and godly values in society. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, with that just brief overview summary of the psalm, move now to the historical background that you see there in your sermon notes, and I'll just uh, read through this, because it's, but I believe it's very important to connect the psalm with the historical. Now, this psalm was written by Solomon, and uh, we mentioned there are 10 anonymous psalms in this group that we believe uh, Hezekiah himself wrote. And then uh, he took four from King David, one from Solomon. And, of course, we believe he borrowed these because they spoke so well to his times and what they were dealing with. And this is true on this case as well. Historical background. After God's miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. Let me just pause right there for a moment because we have guests. Now, I can't go into detail. We've already done that guest. But all you need to know is... They got themselves in a situation when the Assyrians invaded Judah. It looked like it was over. Lights out. And God supernaturally intervened, sent an angel into the Assyrian camp, and in one night killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers as they retreated back to their homeland in defeat. Defeated not by the residents and soldiers of Jerusalem, but God Almighty Himself 
as he uh, stood to protect his people, to defend his city, as he had promised he would to Hezekiah. And it was beautiful to see how in that difficult situation, as we've already seen, how Hezekiah and the people put their trust uh, in God, not knowing exactly how it was going to happen, how God would work, how God would deliver them, but in the end, he did. So after God's miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion, the nation of Judah, and this is the important thing to see, and we touched on this last week, was faced with the monumental task of rebuilding their homes, their cities, and their families. According to Assyrian records, the Assyrian army in this invasion overthrew 46 fortified cities. Remember we talked about the fact Jerusalem literally was the last city standing when God intervened. So prior to that, they overthrew 46 fortified cities in Judah, conquered numerous small towns and villages, destroyed homes, stole the livestock, ravaged agricultural fields, confiscated all the nation's silver and gold with over 200,000 people carried away into captivity, into slavery. And this explains the references in the Bible to a small surviving remnant. We read in 2 Kings 19.4, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. In 2 Kings 19, verses 29 and 30, and we focused on this last Sunday, it records God's promise to the surviving remnant. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. And then that next paragraph, that last paragraph in the historical background, even as God's people were confronted with the initial crisis of faith when attacked by the Assyrians in the aftermath, they were faced with the even greater challenge of walking in a sustained faith through the long and arduous task of restoring the nation. And I personally believe that's always the greater challenge. It's just not that initial crisis of faith where you trust God for deliverance, but it's what I call that the slow plodding faith. They knew it would take years for them to rebuild their cities and towns, to even rebuild their families, to repopulate the land. They knew this was not going to be easy. The place was devastated because of the brutality of the Assyrians. They had a scorched earth policy when they, they came through. So the greater challenge is this sustained faith, this slow, plodding, continuing uh, act of faith on God's part day in and day out uh, to see God restore the nation. And so the question is, would they look with anxiety on what appeared to be an impossible task or would they look to God to fulfill His promise of restoration, trusting that with God nothing is impossible? Psalm 127 is an exhortation to the surviving remnant to trust God in rebuilding their homes, in rebuilding their nation, in rebuilding their families. Now, look at the lessons to be learned for today. And... Uh, the first five I'm going to move rather quickly through, and I want to spend a little more time on the last lesson to be learned. But look at lesson number one. Building anything 
not dedicated to and dependent on God is pointless. Building anything not dedicated to and dependent on God is pointless. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So Hezekiah was using this psalm to encourage the people as we begin to restore the land, as we begin to rebuild, we need to do this with the right attitude. We need to dedicate everything we do to the glory of God. We need to do it realizing our total and utter dependence on God. We can't complete this task, but God can give us the grace to do so. Look at the second truth, seeking security or preservation for something, anything without praying to, relying on, and thanking God for safety is futile. Seeking security or preservation for something without praying to, relying on, and thanking God for safety is futile unless the Lord watches over the city. The watchman stays awake in vain. So Hezekiah again is using the psalm to remind the people as we restore our homes, our towns, our villages, our fortified cities. Yes, we're going to labor, and yes, we're going to do everything that we can to protect and preserve, but ultimately our trust must be in God alone. We must look to Him in prayer. Must, we must rely on Him through faith, and we thank Him for His watchful eye over His people. Look at the third truth. Burning the candle at both ends when it is fueled by anxiety is not only futile and frustrating, but can be lethal physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And many of us have experienced that. Burning the candle at both ends, when it's not being fueled by trust in God. There's not that sense that I'm a co-laborer with Jesus, and hand in hand, me and him are going to tackle this, me totally dependent on him. No, when you're burning the candle at both ends because it's just fueled by anxiety, not, you're not looking to God. It's just worry and fear that's driving everything. That's not only futile and frustrating, but it can be lethal, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And then the fourth truth that we need to take for our lives today. When trusting God, He not only gives us the strength to work, but the rest we need. When trusting God, He will not only give us the strength to work, but the rest we need. We can lay our heads on the pillow each night and rest peacefully knowing our lives, knowing our work, our projects, our homes, families, are in the hands of the sovereign, all-powerful God who loves us. For He gives to His beloved sleep, or He gives to His beloved while in their sleep. And then the fifth truth, and we'll actually have an opportunity in the next psalm, Psalm 128, to really amplify uh, much of this truth about children and the family, because uh, that's the whole focus in Psalm 128, or much of it. But uh, the fifth truth, children are to be received from God as a heritage, a reward, and a weapon to stand against God's enemies and ensure future godly generations. Children are to be received from God as a heritage, a reward, and a weapon to stand against God's enemies and ensure future godly generations. Hezekiah was encouraging people, you don't need to be afraid of having children. 
of building families, repopulating the nation. I know there are a lot of enemies out there, a lot of adversaries. We saw what the Assyrians could do. But as we go forward, we want to put our trust in God, believing that as God gives us children, these children first are an inheritance, they are an inheritance. In other words, they're a trust. We have a responsibility to raise them up in a godly manner, but they're also a reward. They're, they're a gift, precious gift from God, and God intends them to be a weapon. God tends to use them to stand up against his enemies and to ensure future godly generations. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like the arrows in the hand of a warrior, the children's of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Just in passing, I would say, notice like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Notice it's indicating that the parent views himself what? As a warrior, as a soldier for God for Christ, to impact their culture, to be salt, to light, to make a difference. And I think one of the problems we have in our homes today that we as parents have not stepped to the plate to be what God desires us to be in our culture. And reality is you can't impart to your children what you do not possess and I've said, I've said many times from this pulpit, the, the God I communi communicate to my own children, to my own grandchildren, is not the God that I talk about from this pulpit. It's not what I preach. It's the God that I live out before them. That's what has impact. And now look at that sixth truth, and we'll take a little more time here before we close. God is the builder and preserve our lives and homes and families and nation when we, I thought it would be good, you know, he talks about unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Those, uh, unless the Lord uh, watches, uh, the watchman watches in vain. So uh, what does it mean, uh, practically speaking, to acknowledge that God is the builder and the preserver? And in that process, to cooperate with him to be co-laborers with him in the process. What does it practically mean? Because the text does not address that specifically. It gives the truth. It gives the principle of our trust and dependence upon God. But let's go a little bit further and try to answer that question. What, what does it really mean that God is the builder and preserver? Uh, how, how do we relate to that, cooperate that, where it becomes a reality in our lives, homes, families, and nations? First, notice, I think it means to trust God's provision. It means in my life, in building my life, in building my home, in building my family with my children, in building the church, in building a nation, in building a business, whatever, you can just put, you fill in the blank there, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, first it means I'm, I'm doing that trusting God for provision. And of course that presupposes that I have the confidence that what? What I'm building, what I'm attempting to preserve and protect has been initiated by God, that I've submitted to His authority, that I'm following His, His will. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's look at this passage, uh, Matthew 6, verses 24 through 34, probably the greatest statement in all the Bible on anxiety and worry and fear and, and God desiring 
to bring us to a place of trust that he will meet our needs, that he will provide for us as we submit to him and as we trust him. Matthew 6, verses 24 through 34, this is Jesus speaking. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, man, and wealth. Let me just pause right there. You say, Andy, why did you begin with verse 24? Why didn't you just start with verse 25 that goes right into the issue of worry? And because 24 is the key. Listen to me now. If you're having a trouble with anxiety, if you're having a trouble with fear, with worry, it demonstrates that your heart's divided that you're not trusting in God alone. And this is what that, this verse is saying. You can't come to God with a divided heart. You can't trust God at the same time be holding on to your security blanket like we've talked about the last couple of weeks. And Jonathan, you became the brunt of a few statements. I don't know if you heard about those, your little yellow security blanket. Uh, so... That's what he's saying here, that anxiety indicates that we're not wholeheartedly trusting God and trusting God alone. It's God and something else. And when this something else gets threatened, we panic because we feel insecure, because we haven't found our security in God and God alone. Look at verse 25, and notice verse 25, the four actually connects it with the previous verse. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And I love this. Are you not worth much more than they? In other words, it goes back to the fact that if you're his child, you are his beloved. You are his beloved. Again, he loves and values you as much as he loves and values the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's just as committed to protect you and to provide for you as he was committed to protect and provide his son, the Lord Jesus so are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory has clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Going back, you're his beloved. You of little faith, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And here's the key, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will what? Be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In other words, what he's saying is the most important thing is to have a heart that has a singular devotion to Christ where you're depending and trusting in him and him alone. 
where you're committed first and for the first and greatest priority of your life is to follow him, to seek his righteousness, to become like Jesus, to accomplish the work that he has for you here on earth to do. And Jesus is saying, you come to me with an undivided heart, with a singular devotion toward me, to seek my face, to become like me, to accomplish my work. I give you an ironclad guarantee. I will meet your needs. I will enable you to accomplish that work I've given you here on earth to do. Therefore, you don't need to worry about tomorrow. That has its own problems. I'll take, right now, you can focus on me. And my love for you, your love for me, and we can get through this day. Amen? See, what worry does, and I've said this before, what worry is concern over what might or might not happen. So what happens in worry when we're not trusting God, we're so worried about what might happen, a particular outcome, we're always looking to the future, something I can't control right now. And it literally rips me apart from seeing God as a present reality today in what I'm dealing with. And so what he's saying is, when you really release your life to me, when you really realize you are my beloved, and your number one priority is to seek me and to follow me. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You can focus on me today. Knowing that even as I'm adequate for you today, I'll be adequate for you tomorrow. And that's where you find that beautiful rest of faith. So, we have to trust God's provision. Look at the second thing which is so important. Obey God's word. Obey God's word. And what a magnificent passage, if you want to turn to it there, and I would suggest that you do, Matthew 7, verses 24 and 27. This is how Jesus ended his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is a challenge that he, he gives after that long instruction. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. And what is the rock? The rock of God's Word, but the God, rock of God's Word that has been acted on, that has been obeyed. See, we tend to equate spirituality with how much we know from God's Word. That has nothing to do with true spirituality. Now, that's important. You have to learn God's Word, but if you never start living it, you really don't know it. And that's where God wants to bring me, where I'm learning God's Word, motivated by a love for God, and a commitment to live God's Word, to become a walking, living epistle of His truth, not just to hear, but to act on it. And then notice the, the, the other side of the coin. He says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That's why you can, you, you can have a Bible class, you can have a Sunday morning service, 
and people can hear the identical same message, the identical same teaching, and there'll be some individuals that will be greatly blessed by it and others not. Because, as I've mentioned how many times, listening to a message has never changed the first person. Listening to good Bible teaching has never changed the first person. Now, I'm not saying that's got to be part of it. You've got to be attentive. You've got to be listening. You've got you to receive it. But if you don't appropriate it, if you don't act on it, uh, step out to live that truth, then it does you no good. Matter of fact, it does you the greatest of harms because that's how people deceive themselves. People think they're spiritual because of the truth that they know, the truth they can espouse, and they just walk in deception thinking they're mature spiritual believers and yet having no impact on this world for God, and eventually their lives crumble and fall because it was not founded on the rock of obedience to God's Word. So, trust God for provision. Uh, obey God's Word. Those are two necessary things if we're going to be co-builders, co-laborers uh, with Christ. Uh, and look at the third thing, to seek God's pleasure. In other words, this comes down to the motivation in the work. Then I'm doing this not to put myself on a pedestal, I'm not doing this to receive the applause or the approval of men, but I'm doing this to please God, uh, for His approval, for His applause. And the Apostle Paul beautifully exp expressed this in Galatians 1 verse 10. He says, "For I, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? So he raises the question, Am I now seeking the favor of men or am I seeking the favor of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. You hear what he's saying? He says, the goal of my life is not to be a people pleaser. The goal of my life is not to be put up on a pedestal to get the applause of men. I'm a bondservant of Christ. I live, I exist to submit to his authority, to serve my master's agenda, to get his approval. That's all that means anything to me in life. That and that alone as I minister His grace to others. So trust God for His provision, obey God's Word, seek God's pleasure, and then serve God's purpose. Serve God's purpose. Again, whether it's your life, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your family, whether it's this church, whether it's work, again, you can fill in the blank there. Whatever it is, you need to commit that to serve God's purpose, not your purpose. Again, God is not some genie in a bottle for you to get your three wishes. Your every dream comes true. No, you exist to serve Him, to execute His will here on earth, even as His will is done in heaven. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Romans 12, 1 and 2, what, what great verses. Uh, most of you are very familiar with them. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's, he's just spent the last 11 chapters talking about the amazing mercy, the amazing grace of God that we experience through salvation in Christ. And he says, when you look at that mercy, when you look at the gift that's been given you, the gift of His grace, then there can only be one response. Present 
Your bodies present all that you are a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And again, present your marriage to God. Present your home to God. Present your work to God. Present this church to God. Present this nation to God. Again, you can fill in the blank whatever it is that you're engaged in, that you're involved in. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, and you do that out of a motive of what? Worship, as a spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into the mold of the way this world thinks. Don't be squeezed into the mold of what this world values, this world's attitudes, character, and conduct, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, every affection. Bring your will, your allegiance, so that, why? That you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So again, I trust God for His provision. I obey God's Word. I seek God's pleasure. That's the motive that drives it, and I submit everything to accomplish not my purpose, but God's purpose as I labor, as I work to protect and preserve, as I co-labor with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at the last thing, to display God's glory. This is the ultimate, ultimate purpose and uh, motivation behind everything, to display God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then Romans eleven thirty six is great doxology, doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. In other words, the ultimate purpose of my life is to put the Lord Jesus Christ on display. Whether it's in my life, whether it's in my marriage, whether it's in my family, at the workplace or in this church, that people would see Jesus being formed in me, displayed through me, to bring spiritual welfare and benefit to others. I don't live for myself. I'm to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. I'm to regard you, I'm to regard others more important than myself. Not looking to my own interest, but to the interest of others. I'm to have that mind that was in Christ Jesus. That attitude is to control me. That attitude that I live for God, I live for His glory, I live to serve others. So God is the builder. He is the preserver of our lives, marriages, home, church, nation, whatever. When we trust Him for provision, when we obey His word, seek His pleasure, to serve His purpose, and to display His glory. And let me just leave you one last verse. It's not there in your sermon notes. But what a wonderful place in light of this message to end in terms of a challenge. And these are the words of Christ, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30. He says, listen now, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. Come to me. Leave your anxious toil. Come to me, all you who are labor, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can find rest. You are my beloved. I love you. I'm committed 
to you. I'm for you to cause all things to work for your good. You can rest in me. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. Yes, there is responsibility. We are to obey God's word. And he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I love that. He says, I'm going to meet you where you're at. If you're a young mother and you're having to get up in the wee hours of morning to nurse this little child, he says, I'll go into the nursery right there with you. And I'll give you the strength that you need to get through this night and to get through the morning when you have to get up without any sleep. Whatever it might be, God goes with you at the workplace when you're having to deal with that boss or other employees or projects or situations that seem overwhelming. He, he's willing to come with you because he's gentle and he's lowly and he's humble. And then he says, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is light. It's not talking about the fact that he removes life's challenges, that he removes life's adversities. It doesn't mean that life is, is going to be absent once you trust him of pain and perplexity. But it means that when you come to him to put your trust in him, to find rest in him, you find a joy with him. You, you find that you can cast all your burdens on him, knowing that he what? Cares for you. And he turns you away from that anxious toil to the rest of faith, even in the midst of life's trials and tribulations. Father, thank you for the truth of your word uh, today from Psalm uh, 127. And Lord, we do acknowledge that unless uh, you are active in our lives, uh, in our interests, our projects, uh, we do labor in vain. And Lord, we acknowledge so often we are motivated more by anxious toil than trust in you. And so, Lord, we're asking that you use even that anxiety uh, to push us to you, uh, that you would help us to see you. It open the eyes of our heart, our spiritual eyes, to see that we truly are your beloved, that we would see as never before with greater clarity your love for us and the rest that we can find as we put our trust in you, that rest of faith, even in the midst, as we mentioned, life's trials and tribulations. So, Lord, uh, I don't know where every single person is here in this sanctuary. I know, I know the trials that many are facing as their pastor. But, Lord, you know there are many seated, seated here that are really struggling uh, with heavy burdens, um, with very difficult circumstances, uh, with very hard family issues, painful relational issues. And uh, Lord, uh, give us all now the grace in these last moments to come to you and to lay our burden on you and to find rest for our souls. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.